morning. Um, I appreciate everybody thanking me for, uh, for being here this morning, but I want to thank you. Uh, this church has always had a very special place in my heart. I mean, I knew Pastor Karn. I uh, knew Cecil pretty well. Um, I didn't know Pastor Rob, but I heard he was a precious, precious pastor. Also, I went to elementary school right here across the street at McCandless. It is now senior living that I'm old enough to live in. A full circle of life. And as I look in the room, I see a lot of people who I've known for a long time. Uh, so there's a lot of history. And so I'm just going to ask everybody to be patient as people tell stories about me later. Don't believe everything you hear. Um, I want to read two texts of scripture uh, this morning. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. One is a very general account of something God does, but the one in the New is a very specific account of something that actually historically took place. So first, we're going to read Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32, and then we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, verses 35 through 41. And I'd like to, before I read these texts, I generally begin the reading of the text with these words, hear now the word of God. And then I'll read it, and then I'll finish with the words, thus far the reading of God's word. And there's a reason I do that. It's not to be, you know, unnecessarily formal. It's a recognition that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the sole infallible message from God to us. It is self-disclosure. And after I finish reading the scriptures, I'm going to tell you what I think these mean. The scriptures are infallible. My opinion is not. And so when I render my opinion, it's up to you to be noble-minded Bereans checking the scriptures to see if what I say is accurate. And if what I'm saying is not accurate, you really have a responsibility to let me know. And I have a responsibility to hear that. And I give that advice because you're interviewing a new pastor, and I think that is the nature of the relationship, that we strengthen one another in that capacity, and we all need to be uh, good enough students and humble enough to receive that. Well, having said that, let's take a look now at Psalm 107, followed by Mark 4. Hear now the word of God. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for which he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their souls melt because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Now Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats 
were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine these accounts in Scripture that you've inspired for your own glory and for our benefit, we would come to understand how we should think of storms, where they come from, what they're for, whether they are actual literal storms or the storms in life that we find ourselves in. I pray, Father, that everybody in this room, myself included, would walk away from an event like this with a keener sense of the living God. Help us, Father, to know you more fully, and may our primary application ever be the worship of the living God. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we just uh, had Reformation Day. I don't know if many of you remember, but a number of years ago, your church and our church joined together to celebrate Reformation Day. It was when Pastor Cecil was the pastor, and we were all here, and it was really a wonderful event, this day that we commemorate where Martin Luther in October 31st, 1517, founded the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, really changing history. But what a lot of people don't know is that about 12 years prior to that, Luther had an experience. He actually was, uh, just had finished his master's thesis. He had visited his, his family, and he was on his way to study law. And as he was on his way to study law, something happened. It was 1505, and there was a thunderstorm, and a bolt of lightning almost hit him. And it kind of caused him to kind of reevaluate what he was going to do with his life. And it was then that he actually decided, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go into the ministry. By the way, his father was not terribly happy with that decision. I think then, like today, there's probably not as much money in the ministry as there is in law. But of course, other things happened after that that we all know about that led to what we call the Protestant Reformation. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that when that lightning struck that caused Martin Luther to rethink his vocation and moving in another direction literally affected billions of lives. Interestingly enough, this unbelievable ministerial event that took place was not an event that was planned in an elders meeting. It wasn't as if the elders got together and said, look, let's make sure that Martin Luther almost gets struck by lightning so he'll rethink his position. No, it was an act of God's providence. It was an act of God's nature that caused this would-be lawyer to become an Augustinian monk to reevaluate what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church and begin to make a stand. What happened was 
Martin Luther's life was interrupted. I, um, I've spent a, a good deal of time talking to people in this church, even in this room, old friends. This church has had its difficulties, its ups and downs. You might say we've been interrupted. I did a memorial service here a number of years ago with a, for a, a good friend of mine who I went to high school with. And uh, this room was full. He was a well-liked guy. He was relatively young. The room was full, and I have to say, I am praying for you that this room is full of members of this community who will hear the gospel from this pulpit, and wonderful things will take place. And I'm guessing, as much as we should plan things out, that God has his own plan in terms of the way that's going to happen. You know, there's an old saying, right? You want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. God has a plan. And sometimes those plans involve our lives getting interrupted. We tend to fall into patterns, right? I mean, I am no different than anybody else. I don't like going on, I'm not a guy who likes retreats. I'm not a guy who likes going places. You know why? Because I have a routine. And you know what? I like my routine. I like my coffee, I like where I'm going to sit, I like what I'm going to read, I like my routine. But sometimes our routines get interrupted because we have these patterns and they, they work their way in to our lives, whether it's the way we approach work, the way we approach relationships, the way we approach our own spiritual disciplines, right? Our own prayer life, our own Bible reading the way we approach exercise or hobbies or anything else, we have these routines, then all of a sudden God steps in providentially and our routine gets interrupted. Not too long ago, my family and I, we were on a walk and we noticed a dog with three legs. I'm guessing there was a time when the dog had four legs, but now he has three legs and he has to do things differently. It's often through these interruptions that we begin to take inventory, right? Examine our own lives. We're going to do communion in a few minutes, right? Paul says, examine yourself. There's this, this, I think this healthy process of kind of going, what's going on within my own heart? You see, that bolt of lightning didn't talk to Martin Luther. There were no words. It wasn't propositional. But it did motivate Luther to reevaluate what he was going to do with his life. This world entered into an international interruption, did it not, with this whole coronavirus thing? Everybody's life was interrupted. What did we learn? Churches, a lot of churches crumbled during this interruption. A lot of churches didn't make it. And some of the ones that did make it, they're not doing well. What did we learn about ourselves through this great interruption, this great difficulty, whether it's COVID or whether it's what our individual or your individual church or you individually is going through? When that bolt of lightning strikes, what are you thinking about when you take inventory of your own, your own life? Where's this all leading us? I remember when this first happened, and I, had to, and I went to the grocery store. Remember how the grocery stores kind of got a little crazy? And I remember going to the grocery store thinking, all right, I've got two goals here. One is to provide for my family. 
The other is to not be on somebody's video that's going to go viral with me wrestling with somebody else for wipes or toilet paper. Remember how, you mean, all the shelves were empty, and I'm like, wow, this could, this could go south real fast. I've heard and have been involved in a lot of lives affected by what has happened over the last three years. These great interruptions that have involved affecting patterns in marriage. Sometimes it ended in divorce. Some marriages didn't make it. Some went in the opposite direction. And all of a sudden, there are babies being born. But most of them, you know, first babies. So you have these, these intimate relationships that have been affected. Teachers speculated that, well, now parents are going to find out because they're doing school from home, that it's not always the teacher's fault. Building businesses found out that you don't always need brick and mortar. You can work remote. I mean, it's changed everything business-wise, has it not? I mean, in the Industrial Revolution, everybody went from rural into the cities because if you needed to live in New York or L.A. or Chicago, if you wanted to work, now everybody can kind of live wherever they want. So things changed as a result of this event. So what did you, whether it's COVID or whether it's the difficulties of your life, the difficulties of your church, when you evaluate what's going on here in your own heart? Where is that bolt of lightning leading you in terms of your evaluation? Not of others, but of yourself. You see, interruptions, they can be a crucible. I don't, I, like I said, I don't like being interrupted. I'm one of those people who tends to not answer my phone. I just don't want to be interrupted. Leave a message, I'll get back to you. But it's like a crucible, it's like a furnace, right? You know what a crucible does, right? You know what a furnace does. It removes the dross, it removes the rust, it removes the scum in order to form a precious metal you see, the difficulties in our lives are the means by which our Lord tests us. And by test, I don't just mean an exam. Test in terms of refines us. This is how he refines us. We read in Proverbs 17.3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. So what will you find? What have you found when the dross is removed? What if there's only dross? What if there's only rust? I mean, I, you know, I, sometimes we're working on our houses and we find an old tool or an kind of old, some old implement covered with rust. And as you start pulling the rust off, you realize this is rusted through and through. It's only rust. If I put this in a furnace, it would all burn up. What if we find, when we examine our foundation, to use kind of another approach, that there's only sand? There's, there's no surface to our lives. I mean, Jesus taught as much, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 26 and 27, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine 
and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, there you have the floods again, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. You see, I think for the Christian, these difficulties, these interruptions, they can be of great value because they are causing us to reevaluate ourselves. It's the means by which God refines us. But I'll tell you this, I think it can be, and I don't know if there are any unbelievers in this room, but it can be of even greater value to the unbeliever who comes to realize they have no foundation whatsoever. When they realize my feet are firmly planted in thin air. There's no foundation to my life. I'm not, there's nowhere to land for me. And I think that could be ministerially of great value when they hear that there is one who is the foundation, the substance. We are to call upon his name. At the same time, we need to recognize this. And you're going through a very critical phase in your church's history in the selection of a pastor. That is a very difficult process. You know, I mean, other than picking a spouse, you know, it's right there. And, uh, you know, let me just say, and I don't want to make it hard for this guy coming, but I'm going to say this anyway, because I'll be back at my church next week and, you know, you can just deal with it. But I, we, just, we just selected five new elders in our church because everybody decided to move to Texas. Yeah, don't get me started on that. And as we were evaluating, you know, these elders, the way we're a Presbyterian church, the way we do this is people nominate an elder and then they're vetted and then they're voted for. I mean, it's a very much a Presbyterian form of government is very similar to American form of government, right? You have a, a constitutional republic where you vote for representatives and so forth. So our church is picking elders, which I think is about as important as picking a pastor, right? You have a teaching elder, you have a ruling elder, but they're the people that are responsible to God for this church. And I said this kind of kiddingly, but I kind of mean it. And I said to our church, I go, well, these guys are looking to be elders. I, found, I find them to be wonderful, godly men. But you need to not hesitate to ask them the hard questions. You, you need to make them squirm a little bit. You need to ask them questions that will make them uncomfortable. Because down the road, those things are going to surface. So you want to kind of have almost a premarital counseling appointment where the, the, the psychologist or the pastor is asking the couple the hard questions because it is a hard thing to be a pastor. And you need to make sure that the person that you have in this pulpit is a person who handles the word of God well. But if you, if you read the pastoral epistles, Equal, if not above that, they handle their life well. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a difficult task that you have. But it's an important task that you have as well. Because there is an enemy that wants to ruin the interruption. To turn the interruption into something other than what it is. Somebody who's going to come to kill, Jesus says, and kill and steal and destroy. They want to rob you of the value of that interruption. 
I have to say, you know, I grow quite discouraged whenever there is some type of national crisis like COVID or going all the way back to 9-11, and they put microphones in the face of modern-day clergy members, and the things I hear them say I find so immensely discouraging in terms of where God is in all of this. We need to have an understanding of the sovereignty of God, the incomprehensible sovereignty of God in every last single thing that takes place, including the very trial that you find yourself in right now. And beware of somebody who's going, I know it's stormy, and here, but here's a, night, a nice, bright, shiny life vest that's filled with cement. And it looks good, it's sparkly, right? And you put it on, you're going, this isn't leading me to Christ. This isn't God forming Christ in me. This is a a temporary solution that is not a solution at all. We need to be wary of those types of people. The devil poses as an angel of light. You need to be wise. Wise as a serpent, yet at the same time innocent as a dove. Jude in verses 12 and 13 put it this way. These are spots in your love feasts. I mean, so in other words, they're here. They're in the church. They're at the potluck. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water. In other words, they look like they're going to deliver rain, but there's no rain at all. Carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It's a great warning, friends, because what we're not talking about here is people outside. We're talking about people somehow, as we read, who've crept in. And you need to be wise. It's a difficult thing to critique without being viciously critical. It's a tricky place. You understand what I'm saying here? This idea that I, I am called to ask the tough questions, but I, want, I don't want to be unnecessarily vicious. There are times when God ordains difficulty. I read that Psalm 107. God didn't just see that there was a storm and decide to use it. The psalm says he causes the storm. He's not the God who's going, well, the eggs have been scrambled. Maybe I'll make an omelet. No, he's the one scrambling the eggs from the very beginning. And we need to understand the sovereignty of God in all things. And when we understand the sovereignty of God, that he's created even the wicked for his own purpose, then we can really begin to evaluate, Lord, where are you leading me in all of this? What are you doing in my life individually? What are you doing in our lives as a church? Where are we going, Lord? I remember during this whole COVID thing, people felt like they were under house arrest. Did you feel that, this idea that, wow, I'm, I can't leave my house? We, we, um, we became incapable of finding our normal places for respite. I ran into an old friend here. I won't mention who it is, but it's Kent over here. And he mentioned, I'm like, how's it going? He's like, yeah, I'm in the water. Right? Five days a week I'm in the water. And I, I feel that because I, I know for me, my, my youngest son and I went down to the beach and um, 
as we were walking down the steps at Knob Hill, he goes, Dad, I finally understand the way this affects you. I know for me, to get my feet in the sand and to see the water is like, uh, there's, there's something about that that I find very relaxing. And a part of it is I've lived here my whole life. There's something, you know, if you go down to the beach and you look inland, things really have changed. But if you look out at the water, that pretty much looks the same, right? There's like an immutability to the ocean. And it looks the same now as when I was three years old in Hermosa Beach looking out. And so there's something about that that I find comforting. But here's the problem. All of a sudden there were signs up saying you can't go to the beach. Remember that? Matter of fact, over on the Esplanade, you weren't even allowed to walk on the west side of the Esplanade. Now, I'm not going to get into the clumsy handling of this whole event, but I remember this. I remember thinking, this is something I normally do in order for me to have some type of psychological respite, emotional peace, and I can't do it anymore. So that layer gets peeled off, and I have to begin to evaluate what do I do now? How do I handle the fact that I can't be part of the routine that I've been part of all my life? What will I learn about myself? What have you learned about yourself when your creature comforts are taken away? You know, the scriptures aren't silent when it comes to how to engage. I doubt if I'm telling you, just knowing who's been in this pulpit, I doubt if I'm telling you anything you haven't already heard. But we can always be a little better at it, can't we? We are to approach these trials with joy. And I don't think it's a grin and bear it joy. I don't think it's a fake smile kind of joy. I will put it this way, though. It's a hopeful joy. You know, sorrow and grief aren't necessarily sinful. How do I know that? Because Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And if he did it, it must not have been sinful. But I tell you what is sinful, despair. This idea of, of hopelessness. That is demonstrating a lack of faith. My brethren, James writes, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ellie and I were talking on the phone this week. I think we were, talk we were talking about suffering, difficulty. We all know that Jesus was sinless, right? I mean, that's a doctrine that you're all well, well aware of, right? And I always thought it was kind of interesting in Hebrews where it says that Jesus was perfected through suffering. What does that mean? He's perfected? And all of a sudden it dawned on me that being perfected is not the same thing as being sinful and then sinless. Jesus was never sinful. He was always sinless, but he was brought to completion. He fulfilled all righteousness. 
He got where he needed to be in order to be the great mediator through what? Suffering. And if the completion of Christ, the perfection of Christ included suffering, why would we think it would be any different for us? That God refines us through suffering and assuming, and this could be its own sermon, that we don't grieve or quench the spirit through a grumbling attitude and catering to sinful thoughts and deeds. So easy to be that way, isn't it? You just you kind of like bad things happen, and all of a sudden, it's one of the reasons I enjoy coaching. You know, my kids play. We you coach right forever. Plato made a comment. He goes, "You can learn more about a person through an hour of play than through a year of conversation." I love coaching because I feel like in that environment, which is kind of a fake environment, you kind of learn a lot about yourself. You learn how you respond to fatigue. You learn how you respond to a bad call. You learn how you respond to like antagonism. And it's a wonderful opportunity for me as a coach to teach these young men how to properly respond to things when they don't go quite the way they're going because in this fake environment we call sports, we feel the same way that we feel in the real environment called marriage or the real environment called work or that real environment called sickness and fatigue. And so we're learning through this. But God's classroom is the all of creation. It's his lab, and he is refining us, and he's conforming us into the image of Christ, and that involves suffering, difficulty, tribulation, and trial. Therefore, we are to engage in these things with the joyful expectation that God is doing something wonderful in us. I am convinced of this. That if the God removed the veil and said, okay, let me show you firsthand, and I think he actually does that in certain portions of scripture, and let me show you exactly what I'm doing in terms of this difficulty you're going through, that when you went back and engaged further in that difficulty, you do it with an entirely different disposition. If you understood, fully understood, here's what I'm doing in you, and I'm utilizing this thing that you're really not enjoying in order to accomplish it. Friend, it's a lifelong quest. You don't get to the end of this. You know, you, I've been doing this a long time, and I've been in maternity wards, and I've been in cancer wards. I worked at a retirement home for 25 years as a volunteer, mostly widows. And a lot of them would say stuff like this. They'd go, well, you know, Pastor Paul, I'm ready anytime the Lord wants to take me. And with some of them, they were like, why is he tearing? I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And sometimes it was kind of like, why am I still here? We need to recognize this, that this process of God forming Christ in us happens until we draw our last breath. And even in, in the, at the end of our lives, when we're going through that difficulty, it's God's way of going, I'm ordaining the difficulty of your life right now, that you might fix your gaze upon me. You've got nothing left to offer. Matter of fact, in reality, when you thought you had a lot to offer, you didn't have much to offer then either. But right now, it's readily apparent that you've got nothing to offer and you are fully and wholly and utterly dependent upon me. What a wonderful way to live life. 
to get up every morning and going, I am utterly, completely dependent upon Christ. Story is told about a man who was walking down the street. And he noticed a group of people building, you know, a big brick building. And it was hot and it was difficult. And he finally went up to one of the guys and he said, uh, What are you doing here? And the guy gave him a look like, What does it look like I'm doing? You know, sweaty, tired, sore hot, probably not getting paid much. He looks at the guy and he goes, I'm laying bricks. All right. So, you know, sorry I asked. And he moved on and he got a little further down the street and he saw another guy. And the guy had a whole different countenance. The guy was smiling, a little, you know, whistling, just as sweaty, just as tired, just as sore, getting paid the same amount but a whole different way that he was presenting himself. And the guy decided to take a risk and ask him the same question. What are you doing here? And the guy stopped and he looked up with a big smile on his face and he said, I'm building a cathedral. Friends, there's something bigger going on. You understand that? We can't ever lose sight of the big picture. In these temporary travails, these difficulties that we have moment by moment, it's one of the reasons, by the way, we get together on the Lord's Day, right? that we might fix our hearts and thoughts towards the heavenlies, that we might be reminded of, of our eternal Sabbath rest. We so easily forget there's a big picture going on, and that big picture requires that we, that you and I, take refuge in the vastness of God's incomprehensible sovereignty. You, know, you realize that, that incomprehensible is one of the attributes of God. I used to not like that. I have a degree in apologetics. I like an explanation for everything. I don't want to hear incomprehensible. Then all of a sudden, a light went on, and I realized I don't want to serve a God and worship a God who I can draw a circle around. That in heaven, we will never get to the end of God. There'll never be a day that we wake up in heaven and go, I get it, I understand. That his eternal incomprehensibility will be something that we will worship him for forever and ever and ever. We'll never get tired of it. And even now, we need to take refuge in that sovereignty, that there is a God in heaven who's ordained whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory and the benefit of his church, his children, his bride. And if I can shift the metaphor here just a little bit from the guy going, I'm building a cathedral. Here's what we need to recognize. It is God who's building a cathedral, and we're the bricks. It's interesting in the New Testament, we see that we're kind of both, right? We are the temple in one respect, but in another respect, every brick in the temple is a living stone. And God is he's tempering those stones in order for this cathedral to honor him. Psalm 107 doesn't merely speak of God 
making use of the storm. He's raising the storm. It is one of the many difficulties by God with the expressed purpose of bringing our eyes and hearts to a desired haven. You know, we can get so comfortable in the boat, right? You're in that boat and there's no storm. And you're like, oh, and yeah, I like being in the boat. But you have to realize something. Boats are really designed to take you someplace. They're not designed. I know we live in an area where people go out on their boats and have a drink and just hang out on the boat. But boats really are utilitarian, right? They're designed to bring you someplace. There's a refrain we see in this psalm. We see it in verse 8, 15, 21, and 31. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. You see, similar to the Lord's day, these difficulties are designed to bring our minds and our hearts to our eternal Sabbath rest. They are designed that we might lift our eyes to heaven from whence comes our help. The storm in Psalm 107 caused the souls of the sailors to melt, to reel to and fro, to stagger, and to come to their wits' end. I mean, it's an interesting phrase. You ever come to your wits' end? I feel like sometimes I'm at my wits' end. But what happens then? Then they call out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. We read that he calms the storm so that its waves are still. And they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. You see where this all leads? It leads to a worship service. Let's praise him in the company of the elders. That's the church. Let's get together and worship God for what he is doing. That's the design of the difficulty. Let me finish with this thought. We have to understand this. Every person that Jesus ever healed, every person he ever raised from the dead, every person that the apostles raised from the dead, eventually died. Every sailor who ever read Psalm 107 and received some type of comfort in terms of God delivering them from the storms of life eventually met another distressing circumstance which brought their earthly existence to an end. Friends, I think it would be very short-sighted in our study of Scripture to view God's deliverance as a mere deliverance from the storms of life. See, that's what a false shepherd will do. They'll stay there. They'll be like, oh, you know, there's a God who wants to deliver you from the storms of life. You can live your best life now. It's all about what's going on now. Let me tell you, if you're living your best life now, you're in bad shape. Because I think your best life is going to be in eternity. No. What God is demonstrating here is his power to deliver us from the eternal storm. What God is demonstrating in his ability to calm the waves, to calm the sea, 
is to get us to recognize his power over the ultimate storm of sin and death and judgment. That's the storm. There's no paddling through that storm. That's the storm where every mouth is shut. That crew in Jonah, you know, because we see storms a lot, right? That crew in the story of Jonah, you know, they, they got deliverance, right? They threw him overboard and they got deliverance, but they all died. And I'll tell you this, because they believed in the God of Jonah, that right now they realized that the storm they were really delivered from wasn't the storm that was on that sea, but it was the storm of the judgment of the living God. That's the one that to this day they're praising him for. Friends, it would be the height of blindness to misread the haven in this passage. You see, if I were to ask you, and don't raise your hand, don't answer, if I were to say, well, what is the haven here? that this passage is talking about, this desired haven. We might think, you know, peace and quiet and deliverance from my illness or, or what have you. And let me tell you, I think this haven, the haven is the very person who's delivering us to the haven. The haven is Christ himself. The haven is Christ going, look at, I am going to create in your life such an interruption and a disturbance, you're going to look for help, and that help is found in me, and you will be delivered to me by me. It is all of God. Well, let's finish up with our meditation upon another tempest. We read about the one in Psalm 107, just rapidly. Let's go to this other one where Jesus is sleeping. Even as I was rereading this this morning, I thought, wait, there's a lot to be said here. You know, because, you know, the passage says he went just with himself, nothing with him. And I was thinking, I wonder why the text talks about Jesus getting in the boat and not bringing anything with him. You know, and I, as a pastor, I kind of want to speculate a little bit that he didn't bring a life vest or something. You know, I don't know. But, you know, you got this idea that we're going to go across. Jesus gets in the boat and there's this big storm, right, taking place. And what is Jesus doing? Right? He's sleeping. So what you see here is a specific example of something we read of in Psalm 107. Psalm 107 was this kind of general thing that God causes storms to bring you to think about your desired haven and stuff. Now we're in the New Testament, and we have a storm. And Jesus is in the boat, and he's asleep. And like many of the psalmists, sometimes you do feel like you're praying and God's nowhere to be found, right? Where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? And you got to keep reading the psalm because eventually he, he'll say, here I am. Same thing here. They're like going, where are you, Lord? Where are you? Wake up, wake up, wake up. Now, what's interesting is Matthew's record of this is a little different than Mark's record of this. In Matthew's record of this, what Matthew records is he chastises them while the storm is still storming. Right? I would be kind of like, can you please calm the storm and then I'm all ears? No, sometimes you don't learn the lesson unless you're learning it while you're in the storm. So he rebukes them. Oh, you have little faith. Don't you? And then, then he rebukes the storm. And then things get very interesting. 
because the scriptures say that they were afraid of the storm. But then something happens. He stops the storm, and they go from being afraid to being very much afraid. Why were they very much afraid? Who is in the boat with us? It says, and they marveled, and they were very much afraid. They were, who is this who can do this? You see, their fear of the, of the creation was moved to their fear of the creator. But I would argue that it was a godly fear, a healthy fear, the kind of fear of God that we are called to have all through the text. See the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Cry out to the Lord in your trouble. You see, the desired purpose of this entire enterprise is for us to recognize that the haven is Christ himself. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would increase, elevate our understanding of your divine sovereignty and your power over every last single thing in our lives. May we, as your children, rejoice in the knowledge that even through our difficulties, you are forming Christ in us, you are sanctifying us, that you are perfecting us, and we do pray, Father, that even in our difficulties, even in our sorrow, we would recognize that you are doing a wonderful work, utilizing your entire creation. Father, I pray for this church. I pray, Father, for whoever would be in this pulpit, I pray for the members of this church, the elders of this church, the deacons of this church, that you would equip them, that this might truly be a city on a hill, salt and light affecting the South Bay to the glory of God and the redemption of souls. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus.